welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending November 5th, 2022. This week, the sky is falling. Again? And it costs a lot of money. (laughs) I'm Kim Hollis, and I hugged Elvis Stitch this week. Only took an hour that we could have spent riding Space Mountain. I'm just saying. No, we couldn't because it was broken at the time. Also, Tim Brighty, content creator and gamer who had to put the air conditioning back on today. It, it's November 5th. What What is happening? My, my only hope is to win Powerball <laughs> to be able to afford, to afford this. It's super warm here, too. It was 92 degrees in Orlando on November 1st. Even as a lifelong Southerner, that was too much for me. Too much. Also, David Mumpower, author of Disney Demystified, streaming media analyst, and the greatest Star Wars engineer in the history of Galaxy's Edge. There were five people in that cockpit. Only one of them scored 100%. That's all (laughs) I'm saying. I think Star Wars fans are comically bad at Star Wars, period. (laughs) (laughs) And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burriel, who's concerned that the impending ad crunch is going to hurt our revenue. What's 50% of uh, zero? $8, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) In our deep dive this week, Warner Brothers Discovery lost $2.3 $2.3 billion last quarter. Oh, I guess we're starting the Warner Bros. Discovery <laughs> Death Watch early again this week. I almost wish we had a cool sound effect to put here anytime we discuss that. Womp <laughs> womp. <laughs> yes, the price is right fail horn. Yes, there. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how we're supposed to spin this in any positive way. They're losing billions and cutting everything with theatrical revenue drawing up. One of their few revenue streams is streaming services like HBO Max and Discovery Plus. And those are seeing plenty of cuts too, which means subscribers really have no reason to stay on. Oh, it's hilarious. I actually coincidentally got an HBO Max slash Discovery survey today, and I was just messing with them the whole time. I was like, I've never heard of any of these Discovery Plus shows. I want to watch all of these HBO Max shows, especially Westworld. Give me all the Westworld that you can. Uh, And I mentioned how streaming is one of uh, WBD's few remaining revenue streams. The company made just over $100 million in ad revenue on their streaming services last quarter. That's basically nothing. It's not that ad revenue isn't important. Hulu makes money hand over fist from ad revenue, but nobody's buying into the ad tier at HBO Max. And really, Discovery Plus is such a small portion of their streaming offering right now that it it, it doesn't move the needle. Companies like Warner Bros. Discovery have been propped up by cable revenue for decades. And we've just seen in the last quarter that cable subscriber numbers are dropping through the floor. That revenue stream is drying up too. (laughs) Warner Bros. Discovery is in a whole lot of trouble right now. Yeah, that's the thing about it. We knew when Discovery basically bought HBO Max, and that is what happened here, that we had a smaller company coming in that was trying to run a bigger company that was completely against it in terms of content creation. They're trying to paint it as complimentary, but it's not at all. It is very much two competing business models that they're now trying to cram together. And what we're seeing is exactly what we've been predicting since the deal was first rumored. 
not just announced before it was rumored. And that's these two things don't fit. You've got a square peg, you've got a round hole and advertisers are going, you know, this just doesn't make any sense from us from an investment perspective. While the linear model that Warner relied on, it's just it's on its last legs. What they need in order to make money is increase their subscriber numbers. They need subscriber growth and they need to do that fast. They did add 2.8 million subscribers to their streaming services in the last quarter. But most of them, about 2.3 million of those, were in international markets where people pay substantially less. That decreases their ARPU, their average revenue per subscriber. One bit of news to emerge from the Warner Brothers Discovery earnings call this week was that the merger of the streaming services, HBO Max, and Discovery Plus is being accelerated and will now happen in spring of 2023 instead of summer. Right now, across the two streaming services, they have about 95 million subscribers. That combined, that's an impressive number. Even if you eliminate some of that duplication from people who subscribe to both, by spring, there's a hope that they can actually reach 100 million subscribers for their new combined streaming service. Yeah, they hope that. That doesn't make it a reasonable, rational belief, though. And I think that we need to not gloss over this because it's important. You just said they only had 500,000 subscribers joined during the last quarter in North America, which means their equivalent is 170K subscribers per month. So no matter how you cut this, I'm not seeing the explosive growth that would be needed to actually reach that 100 million level. 80 million is a much more reasonable goal, and I'm not even 100% sure on that. Ouch, 80 million. That means they'd actually be losing subscribers between now and the spring. Because of the duplication, yes. And that's not necessarily out of the question. HBO Max has a bad taste to it right now. A lot of the people who subscribe to it are upset about shows that got removed. I'd argue even a lot of the people who don't watch those shows have heard the stories about the shows that got removed and are wondering what else is going to get removed from the streaming service at what point. And with David Zasloff running the company, you could hear him during the earnings call this week. He's being almost demeaning to the consumer when he talks about, oh, these shows that we removed, like nobody cared about them. He's not endearing himself to anyone. They're just not really making a strong case for why people need to be subscribing to HBO Max. So they're losing money and they've promised these cost savings, don't call them cutbacks. And now apparently, it was going to be $3 billion in cost savings. That's what Zaslav had promised Wall Street when the, the merger happened. Now he's talking about $3.5 billion in cost savings, which means that there's going to be even more cuts, maybe even more programs that are going to get removed, more movies that'll disappear from uh, the face of the earth like Batgirl. As a person who may be considering subscribing to HBO Max, you look at all this and you say, I don't know, maybe I'll just spend my money on Netflix instead. Realistically, David Zaslav is the biggest fan on the planet of Elon Musk right now because this is the first time that someone else in the Wall Street slash Hollywood, that field is getting negative headlines that distract away from Zaslav. And this is what he desperately needs because we we don't want to undersell this and we can't sugarcoat it. For all the negative headlines they've gotten in the past, the last 10 days have been the absolute worst for Warner Brothers Discovery. This is hopefully rock bottom, but we're not even sure about that. 
Well, you mentioned Elon Musk. I don't think we can avoid bringing up his name this week, considering the week of hell he's had. We'll get to that in a second, because we know about more cuts at HBO Max and HBO, cuts from Warner Brothers Discovery. Apparently, there was a reboot of the teen high school drama Degrassi in the works. That's been scrapped. I'd argue it was in the works until David Zaslav found out it was in the works, and then he immediately cut it. And the critically acclaimed series Westworld has been canceled after four seasons, Although, and this is a straight up Elon Musk play, apparently the cast of Westworld had a pay or play deal. So whether season five happens or not, they're getting paid. So uh, good work on that one, Zaslav. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to save money by paying people for a show that nobody's going to watch. I'm tired of kicking at HBO Max slash Discovery right now, at some point, the law of averages indicates they have to start getting better, right? Right? Well, I've been having conversations as to like, what is the ultimate fate or endgame of Twitter at this point? And the company essentially vanishing from the face of the earth is not out of the question. If that can happen, why not Warner Brothers Discovery? That company at this point seems prone to utter and total collapse. I'm not ruling out that this company, Warner Brothers Discovery, stops existing within a calendar year. I'm not ready to go that far. I really am not. But I am hearing rumors that the Peacock thing which shouldn't even be possible for them to negotiate until April of 2024. Both parties would like to expedite this because they're in such financial peril right now, which means that, God help us, there's a scenario growing where somebody else comes in and takes one of them, somebody else comes in and takes the other one, and then we do this again for another two or three years. That is not an unreasonable scenario right now. And I'm not really happy with the fact that we're looking at this as the best case scenario is that Warner Brothers Discovery and Peacock merge because I don't see how, you know, you take two bad things and you put them together. That doesn't make a good thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Man, if those two streaming services get divorced, which one gets Magnolia? Perhaps happy that they had their earnings call on the same afternoon as Warner Brothers Discovery, Lionsgate also reported a massive loss this week. The company lost $1.8 billion in the last three months and is shutting down the Lionsgate Plus, formerly Stars, streaming service in seven regions. Lionsgate also recorded an approximate $1.7 billion write-down from their purchase of stars. This is like what David was saying. It's not time for jokes anymore. We've done it for for weeks, months now. Oh, look how funny Warner Bros. Discovery is with all their fumbling and bumbling around. And look how silly Peacock is with all their shows that no one's watching. It's just bad now. Streaming services are shutting down. Lionsgate Plus is shutting down in parts of Europe. The studio itself... They're looking for a buyer and haven't found one yet. If they don't find one soon, I don't know that this company is going to be around much longer. And I just said that about Warner Brothers Discovery. So I don't know, guys. It's just bad news all around. Yeah, I think we're going to get some good news when Disney releases its stuff next week. But just analytically, we've been saying for a while now that the most important thing was that people need to actually commit to getting ad revenue in a timely fashion. Warner Brothers Discovery was too slow to react on that is what we're facing there with Lionsgate. Lionsgate has just kind of been in that purgatory role. You've discussed it several times where you've been trying to find homes for a while now for Lionsgate slash stars, for Sony. There, there's some pieces 
on the board that we don't know where they're going to go. And it is starting to look like Lionsgate has waited too long to make a move. They have committed to streaming over their, you know, theatrical business release model, which was the correct decision. But they're in financial straits right now, which means somebody's going to come in and probably look at them as an asset rather than this is something that survives on its own long term, at least based on the information we have this week. And I have to emphasize these things change so fast. What we were saying six months ago can seem wildly outdated because of the ebb and flow of this. The cash flow is what's driving all this. And right now, Lionsgate is starting to get into liquidity issues. And the hits keep coming as Roku reported a loss last quarter and made some dire predictions about the next quarter as well. The good news is that Roku's loss wasn't as bad as they expected, and the company was actually rewarded for their honesty in regards to the coming quarter with their stock rebounding after taking an initial dive in after hours trading. Apparently, Roku's fundamentals are strong. They know the next quarter is going to be bad. There is this ad contraction happening right now. Advertisers are buying less. Everybody's talking about recession. And Roku has indicated that they don't know when these bad feelings are going to end, but they expect that it will and that they're going to be able to weather things until then. What I think has hurt Roku is there was this expectation that they'd be doing some kind of deal or merger with Netflix as Netflix was moving towards launching their ad tier. And that didn't happen. So Roku now has to continue to exist as a standalone company. And maybe they weren't necessarily expecting that to be their course of action. But when ad buys start picking up again, Roku is one of the strongest ad platforms out there. And I think they're going to do just fine. They just need to hold on to some of that uh, cash in hand, some of that cash they have in the bank, and that'll hold them through until uh, until things start getting better again. I think you could hear from Raul's tone just how concerned we are by the numbers we've looked at this week. On the Roku end, what worries me isn't even the advertising. They're expecting fewer hardware sales this holiday season, which, you know, given how cheap Roku's are, they seem to think that they're starting to reach a point of diminishing returns where all the people who want Roku's have them. And so they're not really expecting additional hardware growth moving forward. And that's for a company like this, that is a troubling sign again. So, you know, we're we're not trying to be doom and gloom this week, but, you know, these are the financial reports we got and all of them. I mean, all three are just like, you know, sirens, bells and alarms. Seriously. Yeah, that's actually what I was going to say. No, knowing nothing else, I would have anticipated Roku always doing better in the fourth quarter than anywhere else, just due to their, their, their hardware sales. They always seem like they make excellent gifts or they're just ways to like, here's how you can watch all these shows on your TV to your older parents. Like you set, you set them up with a, with a Roku, show them how to press a couple buttons and, and, and boom. I mean, I know their, their money is mainly in advertising rather than the hardware sales, but that's just really, really surprising to me knowing nothing else. Yeah. Well, Roku has been trying to diversify their portfolio. They have finally launched after announcing some time ago their home automation products, which are essentially wise devices that have been rebranded as Roku. So we're talking about like smart doorbells, smart light bulbs, smart plugs, that kind of stuff. You could start seeing them now, I think, in Walmart stores and presumably you'll start seeing them in other stores soon. I don't know about that. If Roku's trying to position itself against 
say the Amazon Echo line and the Google Home products and even Apple, I think lining yourself up against those companies, you're bound to lose. But if this is an additional revenue stream for Roku, where maybe some people start buying these relatively affordable home automation devices, it it puts a, a few extra dollars in the Roku bank, that's good for them. On the Peacock front, in some less dire news, the streamer has made a deal with the Hallmark Channel and is going to bring their live and on-demand content to the platform. This falls squarely under the mantra of somebody do something. And sure, now Hallmark has a reliable streaming outlet for their on-demand and live content. The fact that there's live content here isn't as groundbreaking as some of the media reports would have you believe. Peacock does plenty of live stuff. They do the WWE pay-per-views. They did the Olympics, plenty of live content from the Olympics. They did Super Bowl live. The fact that it's linear, that you can actually watch the Hallmark Channel live on Peacock, it's no big deal in my opinion. But there's a bigger conversation going on here that no one's talking about and no one's hearing it. And that's the burying of analytical data from streaming services, particularly streaming services that are part of a larger conglomerate. When Comcast did their quarterly earnings call last week, Peacock was barely mentioned until an analyst brought it up. And if corporations don't bring up their streaming services, it's not because it's good news and rosy days. It's because they have nothing good to say. I was going to say, was the, was the response, wait, what? what is Peacock? We own that? Yeah. Okay. There's uh, remember, folks. They were building their entire calendar year around committing to Peacock. We are now in the time where all the NBC Universal shows are on Peacock, not Hulu. This is their victory lap that we're supposed to be watching, and instead, it's like, um, what do you guys want to talk about? The same parks were really good. Yeah, I mean, Comcast didn't have much good to say about anything with... Raul sounds like his puppy has gotten outside. Yes, you you sound so sad. Well, we're getting into analytics now, so this is the stuff that really interests me. So hold on for some riveting conversation, folks. There's a larger narrative going on here. We see this with Amazon and Prime Video and Apple and Apple TV Plus, where basically these streaming services don't move the needle. Disney has made Disney Plus the cornerstone of that company. So analysts and markets react to any Disney Plus news. At Amazon, Prime Video is an afterthought. Heck, people don't even subscribe to Prime Video. They subscribe to Amazon Prime for free shipping. And oh, also you get Prime Video as a bonus. Congratulations. It has yet to be a driver of traffic to Amazon Prime. You wonder why they spend a billion dollars on the rings of power where I'd argue that no one thought I'll subscribe to Prime Video to get the Rings of Power. Anyone who watched that show was already subscribed to Amazon Prime for free shipping. I'd like to push back on that a little bit, though, Mm -hmm. just because we don't actually know because Amazon has no need to talk about these things, so they don't go into the specifics. So we don't think it's a driver, but until, you know, there's some transparency, which Amazon, frankly, has no compulsion to do, we're going to remain in the dark about it. However, common sense does kind of dictate that free movies is good. Well, that's it. That's it. Exactly, David. If it is a driver of subscribers, if Prime Video is a driver of subscribers to the Amazon Prime subscription service, don't you think Amazon would be talking about it? Amazon's different than Peacock, though, is the thing. With Peacock, this is one of their core business models. It should be a priority to me. With Amazon, it's an afterthought internally. 
is kind of the difference. So as weird as it is, and I hate to split hairs, I do see a distinction between NBC Universal slash Comcast ignoring Peacock and Amazon not talking about Prime. Do you disagree? No, uh, I, I'd be inclined to agree. Amazon, I feel, f- uh, is a much more diversified company. They have a lot more, let's call them silos, and a lot more things to talk about than Prime Video is only one of them. But being that it's one of the more marquee ones, one of the more forward-facing ones that everyone's looking at and noticing, let's take this to Thursday Night Football. We're in a world where corporations will put out press releases about anything and spin the least amount of data into positive news if they can. And we heard Amazon crowing about Thursday night football over the first couple of weeks of that season. And since then, it's been utter radio silence. We heard about the viewership numbers for the first couple of weeks of the Rings of Power and then radio silence. Look, my business, what I do for a day job is live streaming. And I know all about just how you can inflate your numbers for a live streaming event. And I can be absolutely certain that Amazon inflated their numbers for Thursday Night Football over the first couple of weeks. And now that those numbers have probably and almost certainly declined, like who's watching Thursday Night Football on weeks three, four, and five when, you know, it's just more of the same. It was a lot more interesting in week one because everyone wanted to see what it was going to be like and is it going to work? Is it going to look good? And so forth. They just don't have the numbers. And so if they're not talking about it, it's not because it's good news. I mean, part of it comes down to scheduling with Thursday night football, you can't really predict in advance what's going to happen, which leads to anomalies like this week, which was genuinely weird. And I wish there were transparency about numbers because we had Philadelphia and the Houston Texans playing, which is on paper an absolutely terrible football game because Philadelphia is undefeated. Houston only has one win on the season. But at the same time, on a different network, Houston and Philadelphia were playing in game five of the World Series. And so there's like a weird kind of city pride happening. And there's also, you know, the reverse side of that, the competition of the World Series. All these things are strange and Amazon has gambled here and they have decided that what they're getting with NFL football matters more than all the financials that they're paying for it. And I feel like that's also true of the Prime Video Library to an extent, but I also feel like Amazon would have to pay more if they trumpeted it as more of a core business model. They would have to say, oh, look how good this is. It is significant to our bottom line, at which point people go, well, then we're going to charge you more for that content. Mm. We're just right now, we're in a transitional phase across the entire streaming industry. And so we're having to reevaluate some things that we did know and we were correct about them at the time, but they not, might not be correct for tomorrow. And so that's why we're all looking around going, boy, I don't like these numbers at all. And just to put a point on this, I think David has a lot right in what he's saying in the sense that Amazon has a lot going on. And so they can't be talking about Prime Video all the time. That's just like one of their many portfolios. Let me just point out that in that portfolio, in that Prime Video portfolio, they are spending a billion dollars a season on Rings of Power. And to them, that's just, yeah, that's just another thing we have. That's mind boggling. I mean, that's the thing. Amazon Web Services, AWS, I don't actually know if that's the official name these days or not. $20.5 billion in revenue for this one quarter that was just announced. $20.5 billion. As ridiculous as the statement sounds, the amount of money they paid for that Hobbit TV series is couch 
cushion change to them. It really is. The NFL Mm -hmm. isn't much different, which is why I'm still waiting to see what happens with NFL Sunday ticket because Apple and Amazon, they're the players who don't need it, but they're also the ones who won't even feel it if they have to write the checks. (laughs) Yeah. Kim, do we have any stories that might make Raul happy? Mm, No. In news that's only mildly related to streaming, Nexstar, the new owners of the CW, continue with their cuts. Stargirl has been canceled and freshman shows The Winchesters and Walker Independence have not yet received back orders for additional episodes. I feel we've seen the last of original content on the CW. As uh, dumb as it sounds, I think we're about to find ourselves with a national broadcast network that shows Gilligan's Island and Bonanza reruns. Oh my God, they've reinvented WTBS from 1982, haven't they? I, yeah, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not joking about it. Yep. It's me TV, is what it is, if that's yep. what they wind up doing. Mm-hmm. The Winchesters is what passes for a blockbuster hit for them. How are yes. they not doing more episodes? That's the I, thing. The I Winchesters. Just made a joke last week that the Winchesters only had like 300 some odd ep- more episodes to go to catch up to, to Supernatural. Right. And that's not going to happen. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, the Winchesters is 100% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a built in audience. It should have everything going forward. If they don't want to keep that, there is really no hope. Well, that's good news for Sven Gooley. He's going to have some negotiating power in his next contract. <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> Do we have any box office to discuss this week? One Piece? Apparently your top film on Friday is something called One Piece Film Red, making $4.8 million. So congratulations, nerds. You did it. (laughs) Yeah, but I were having a lot of fun talking about this the other day at Disney. There's a lot of people having to Google what exactly is One Piece Film Red (laughs) and how much of that is like the anime's actual name versus the title for this. Right. Yes, Mm, I know. I know. I know one piece and then they just threw film in there. And I guess the subtitle is red because there's a colon, but yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, you gotta just make uh, through some words together. I know what one piece is. Yes. I've, I've, I've heard of it. I couldn't tell you anything about it. This is just a very quiet weekend before we get black Panther Wakanda forever next weekend. Question mark. We've got our tickets for Thursday and I'm laughing mm-hmm. at the fact that it's probably going to pass black Adam in a, a weekend. weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Is at 123 million, which actually is fairly decent re- recovery. Is it though? Black Adam's going to be at 130 million after three weekends. Mm. There's just no way to sugarcoat it as anything other than a financial disappointment, if we're honest about it. It's going to be massively disappointing if Wakanda Forever isn't over 150 million by the time, you know, the next podcast airs. So it, it is just kind of, it demonstrates scale. People keep talking about, I'm tired of Marvel and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. But then they demonstrate with their consumer behavior and it's emphatic. But the one place film red just busts me up because this is what passes these days for a surprise success film. Mm-hmm. And we've really only had one of them in two and a half months, and that would be Smile. But we should not sleep on the fact Smile's about to cross $100 million. $100 million, yeah. After Friday, it's at $96 million. So yeah, it's going to make $100 million, which I don't think anyone saw coming, and that that's huge. Yeah, and Wakanda Forever will be big for at least a weekend. I feel like it's going to, just no, not, not even having seen the trailer, I just feel like it's going to crater after that, unless it's absolutely spectacular, which I just feel like it maybe won't be without the presence of uh, Chadwick Boseman. But 
Yeah, it's going to pass Black Adam in a weekend, and that's going to be hilarious. I actually just wrote about it earlier today, and that's kind of along my lines. I'm waiting to see what reviews are from unbiased officials, because right now all we've had is like the world premiere type screenings from people who are inclined to love it anyway. What I will say is that Ryan Coogler is one of the greatest directors alive today, legitimately. He cares about this project, and I struggle to believe he would fail in this endeavor, but that was a jinxed production. I mean, that was as cursed a production as we have had in recent memory. So if they did cobble together a great film, it's that much more impressive a thing. Because you have to realize, I mean, the lead actress in the film almost literally broke her neck. She broke her shoulder and some other stuff. They had to convince her to come back from England. I mean, it was that bad. This is a struggling production, every sense of the word, but it's also a tale of grief and suffering and how we all feel the pain of loss. And if they've done it right, it's going to resonate. So I'm kind of just holding my breath. I know that Kim and I are going to be there Thursday, and you know I'm holding it in the highest hope, but I understand why you're nervous. All right, guys, before we go into the ratings, I'd mentioned Amazon and Thursday Night Football earlier. I'd like to go back to something that we speculated on a few weeks ago. We were wondering what Amazon would be promoting after Thursday Night Football now that the first season of the Rings of Power had concluded. Some of our listeners had suggested that it would be the peripheral. And honestly, that sounded genius. That seemed like the right uh, the right show. And it had premiered just in time for the Rings of Power to conclude. But instead, it turns out Amazon has gone a different way. They've been premiering live concerts at midnight Eastern time with artists like Megan Thee Stallion and Lil Baby. In fact, it's uh, delightful to hear Al Michaels telling us about an upcoming concert with <laughs> two chains. The uh, the first one was uh, last week, which was the first week since the Rings of Power had concluded. Uh, no word yet as to whether this is holding on to the Thursday Night Football audience, but I will tell you that I did watch this week's Thursday Night Football past the game. They have a post-game show, a uh, Google Pixel 7 post-game show, which is ironic since we're on an Amazon streaming service. And once the post-game show ends, the stream ends. It doesn't jump into something else. But there was a whole lot of promoting this live concert, though. So there's no way you could have avoided knowing that there was a concert coming up after the football game. And we'll also touch on the peripheral again later in the podcast. Right. Okay. So what do the ratings look like, Tim? Well, considering how depressing this podcast has been so far, uh, let's look at the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, October 3rd to Sunday, October 9th, 2022. And your number one show is still Dahmer with 2.3 billion minutes. This is the worst podcast we've ever done. <laughs> oh my God. But wait, there's more. All is Hold lost. On. Yes. <laughs> yes. All is lost. Oh dear. Okay. Yeah, enough said about that. It's been here a while. It's still going to be here for another couple weeks. Uh, second, we have The Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. 988 million minutes, seven episodes. So maybe uh, a jump next week, go across a billion again, and then hang around for another couple weeks and then vanish till we get season two. I actually think this one will get some rewatch because it turns out the two famous characters from the Tolkien novels are in this, but they're not going by their identity. So there's a rewatch factor. Okay. It's very interesting. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, they've, there's an investment in, in it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they're happy with, with how it's, how it's turned out. And third, Cobra Kai is still here for a few weeks now, 558 million minutes for its 50 episodes. Um, taking a jump to fourth from premiering last week was The Empress, 523 million minutes for six episodes. 
And then in fifth, just because people are sick and just can't get enough, this is the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes, 522 million minutes for three episodes. You are all the worst. All these discussions make me appreciate Mind Hunters more because it somehow explored similar subject matter without seeming creepy, manipulative, anything like that. And in a way, almost heroic because there are people trying to do the right thing in impossible circumstances. Whereas this, these two things just feel like a celebration of something disgusting. Yeah, this is an established series called Conversations with a Killer. The same director has done episodes for Netflix, Juan, both Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy, uh, and in addition to some other terrible true crime stuff. So I'm not surprised that it's here at all. This is clearly piggybacking on the success of you know the the Dahmer series, but yeah, what is wrong with you people? I mean, come on, do better. In slightly happier news, the Great British Baking Show, which is always here when it's in season, is in six, 513 million minutes for its 79 total episodes. She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, eight episodes, so one more to go in its season, 454 million minutes. I'm guessing it's going to maybe jump slightly, as we see Disney Plus series do, and I know the finale was polarizing for some people. I thought it was hysterical. If you poll the people participating in this podcast, you'll get a 75% approval rating for the season finale. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. I liked that it didn't take itself very seriously and, and had some fun at the expense of um, certain people. Eighth is The Handmaid's Tale, 410 million minutes for 51 episodes. Our only other new show this week is in ninth the midnight club 400 million minutes viewed for 10 episodes this is the latest series from mike Flanagan, who's done very well in the past with things like uh, midnight mass and the haunting of hill house and the haunting of bly manor so not surprised to see him come back with another series and already be here and i think this will grow because actually this premiered on the seventh so this is only a three-day number the mike Flanagan series to me right now feel a lot like the, this current season of corporate kai uh, it feels a lot like a whole over until the big one and that is i i believe he's doing the fall of the house of usher the fall of the house of usher yes is his yeah. next project yes so i'm just waiting for that one now this these are all just secondary until that one comes out and originals wraps up with andor from disney plus 356 million minutes for its five episodes so i expect it to maybe disappear for a week or two and then show up once its season is complete movies uh, after exploding out of the gate last weekend, Hocus Pocus 2 is still on top, but it takes a big drop to uh, about 1 million minutes. It feels like there's a very specific audience for this project, and they all watched it in the first week. We're now in a place where that same audience has a very divided attention with Hocus Pocus 2 the original Hocus Pocus and other Disney projects on Disney Plus. So they can't just be spending all their time watching Hocus Pocus 2 over and over again. It was a virulent and loud core group of viewers and they got what they wanted. But this movie doesn't seem to be doing strongly outside of that core. I suspect it'll pop back up again for Halloween. I'm almost wondering if the original will end up beating it by the end of the month. As just to jump ahead a little bit, it is here, Hocus Pocus Pocus is here in fifth. 359 million minutes is a lot fewer than 1 billion, but 
after you know people are used to seeing that one and this one exploded you know with its with its release at the beginning of of October um but I I think as, as we get closer to Halloween and the end of October I wonder if people will go back to the original one the second and third movies may get a little confusing and second is a movie we saw last week this is last seen alive 747 million minutes this is the Gerard Butler action movie again when was the last time we've have seen Gerard Butler alive prior to this movie but in third is something new called Luckiest Girl Alive, 647 Million Minutes. This is the uh, Mila Kunis thriller that I know we talked about that week. Another new movie in fourth, Mr. Harrigan's Phone, 570 Million Minutes. Yeah, the Stephen King story about the dead man and his still alive cell phone. He really hates technology and phones, doesn't he? <laughs> Stephen King. Yeah. yeah. Uh, technology in a general sense, yeah, I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And Elon Musk. I, I was going to say, make uh, make your Twitter say, jokes here. Yes, Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> Fifth is Hocus Pocus, as we mentioned, three hundred fifty-nine million minutes. Sixth, Inheritance, three hundred thirty-two million minutes. Uh, I'm still astounded by the appearance of this movie on the list. Come on, Tim. These are too ordinary. You've got to have some weird ones. Do I have a weird one? I guess this this is what counts. But it, it's uh, Rush Hour. The yes, the the original one from nineteen ninety-seven, two hundred sixty-nine million minutes in seventh. It came back along with the other two Rush Hour movies, came back to Netflix on October 1st. Also credited to HBO Max for some reason. I'm sure it's it's because it was there, but I imagine 99% of the viewership is from Netflix. Yeah. You're breaking David Zaslav's heart. <laughs> he has one? Oh, God. Touche. In eighth, Hellraiser, 248 million minutes. This is the new one or reboot from Hulu that arrived on October 7th. I'm really proud every time I see a Hulu movie on these charts. Hulu is trying very hard with their original movies, mostly 20th century movies. Don't call them 20th century Fox movies that don't necessarily get a theatrical release. There's others I wish I had seen on these charts. It's unfortunate that Prey didn't do as well as we had expected. But here, yeah, Hellraiser and the lead up to Halloween in the top 10. Very nice. Yeah, I think, again, it's it's how Nielsen tabulates these. And again, as we stress repeatedly, this is only viewing on television and not second screen because we were really dismayed at the not only the performance of Prey on Hulu, which apparently was you know supposedly more successful than than these ratings indicated but we were disappointed with how that movie do revenge had done had done and mm-hmm, if you yeah. and, it, and if you looked at the information that Netflix actually releases that did way better than say like Father Stu did, even though Father Stu was on top and Do Revenge was in the middle of the charts. So that indicates that obviously there was a lot more second screen, you know, mobile viewing rather than television viewing, which is which totally makes makes sense considering the target audiences. Just thought I throw that out there because I, no- I noticed that checking on on Netflix's top ten charts. Something else, uh, quote unquote new. I guess this also qualifies as weird. Here is Dexy, two hundred twenty eight million minutes. This is a twenty nineteen comedy starring Adam Devine about his uh, his cell phone that like runs his life. It had an absolutely hysterical trailer, and then the movie itself was absolutely terrible, but it did give me a song called Lost in Space by Emmett Fenn, so I'm going to call it a draw. It apparently showed up on Netflix from wherever it was, also on October 1st. I guess people were intrigued by the title, and I apparently this bodes well for the success of Adam Devine's Pitch Perfect spinoff, which is what I'm going to be on, like Peacock, right? Yeah, I don't think this movie is here because Adam Devine was in it. 
know what I think it was, but yeah, just just throwing it out there. Uh, we wrap up movies with something we saw last week: Blonde from Netflix, two hundred twenty-three million minutes. The Anna Dermas attempt at an Oscar. Yeah, Tim, you mentioned Father Stu earlier. It had been number one a couple of weeks ago, and it's totally fallen off the charts mm-hmm. this week. No surprise, it was like number ten last week. So yeah, it went from like first to tenth to, to yeah. off, which is not yeah not unheard of. It's I, I suppose significant to mention that Sony's actually re-releasing this movie in theaters in December with a uh, kinder, gentler PG-13 cut, as the previous version had an R rating for language, which is, <laughs> it's a faith-based movie, folks. Right. Uh, I did, maybe, did not know that at all, that it was R. Maybe take yeah. out a couple of F-bombs. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out they weren't even in the script. It's just Mark Wahlberg just naturally threw them in there and oh, they just kept it. God. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I'm curious now if they if they saw just the moderate success it had on streaming and figured out oh, maybe we can get a few more bucks if we throw it back in theaters. Oh, then I wonder if maybe the moment they put it back in streaming, if it'll jump right back to the top 10. Your acquired list is 10 shows we've seen before, once again led by House of the Dragon, 921 million minutes for eight episodes. So two more to go. I presume it'll crack a billion, if not next week, that definitely with that last one. And then I am curious how long it hangs around on this list, if it shows similar to Game of Thrones, or if it's just not enough episodes for it to stick around long for a long long term once there's newer content. Yeah, that's one of the fascinating things about Game of Thrones is its staying power. And I think that's the one way that House of the Dragon is just not going to be able to live up, which is, you know, if we look at a box office analogy, that's what we've always seen with sequels, where at the start they do just as well. It's over the long haul where they fade. Nothing else too exciting on the list this week outside of the return of The Simpsons in ninth, 468 million minutes for its 667 episodes. Jeez. But again, always good to see when when that's here because we, we know that The Simpsons and Bluey, which is in 10th, are among the most watched things on Disney Plus and doesn't often reflect enough in the Nielsen ratings, again, due to how they're tabulated. Also, to a larger point, we continue to see this expansion at the bottom where it used to be that 200 million minutes would get you in there. Now it's 411 million minutes is the floor so the one that's growing the most based on what we're seeing on the charts each week is acquired yep people like their their comfort food we always have the things with a million episodes ncis Grey's anatomy simpsons blacklist is approaching 200 gilmore girls is actually in fourth with 153 episodes and 700 million minutes so which is makes me very happy but yeah it is always curious to see the the, the numbers have gradually gone up on the acquired chart as we've been doing this yeah i i kind of hate to to all continue to bring this podcast down but yeah jeffrey dahmer stuff and you know you're all horrible people do better i'm gonna go lie down <laughs> thanks tim in our green lights and cancellations this week it's been reported that liam hensworth will be replacing henry cavill as Geralt, starting with season four of the witcher I suppose it's good news that we're not only getting a season three of The Witcher, but also a season four. And there's a whole universe here because there's also a prequel series in the works with an entirely different cast. As for why Henry Cavill is leaving, he was largely responsible for this show being created. So while there may have been some internal conflict with the producers, I think he had enough sway that he could have stayed on if he had wanted to. No, this is uh, this is maybe in light of recent, uh, let's say, spoilerish things that may have happened in a certain DC movie that was released theatrically just a couple of weeks ago. And it turns out Henry Cavill may be uh, busy for a while. 
And in what is surely the best news in streaming this week, Netflix announced, although with little fanfare, that The Sandman had been renewed for season two. Yay, there's that good news we wanted. I know, finally. Maybe Netflix had something bigger in mind for the announcement. Maybe they were waiting for some particular date of significance, but the DC Comics Twitter page accidentally leaked the news, so Netflix just went ahead and confirmed it. Woo-hoo. Yes, we're all very happy about that. Netflix has also ordered The Gentleman, a series from Guy Ritchie, inspired by his 2019 film. The cast includes Vinnie Jones, Giancarlo Esposito, and Jolie Richardson. They desperately are going to need Michelle Dockery and Hugh Grant in it because they were brilliant in that film. Oh, it was a it was a very entertaining movie. What's that meme? You know you're in trouble when Giancarlo Esposito shows up? <laughs> yes. So true. Over at HBO Max, Kristen Milioti has joined the HBO Max series based on Colin Farrell's The Penguin, spinning off from Matt Reeves' The Batman movie. She'll play Sophia Falcone, the daughter of Gotham mob boss Carmine Falcone, who was played by John Turturro in the movie. How I Met Your Godfather. (laughs) Apple TV Plus is adding to its cast for season two of Severance announcing that Gwendolyn Christie, Bob Balaban, and Merritt Weaver are among eight new additions. I'd just like to add here that we were in line at Disney and Kim and a complete stranger were trying to convince me to watch Severance, and I still wasn't falling for it. So adding Merritt Weaver and Gwendolyn Christie isn't going to move the needle either, even though I love them. You said only if Adam Scott is suffering a lot. And I I told you, yes, he, he does. He suffers a lot on that show. No means no, Kim. (laughs) Perhaps we've been selling it the wrong way. One project that's having trouble getting off the ground is Bad Blood, Apple's original movie about Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos scandal. Jennifer Lawrence was set to star, but she backed out after seeing Amanda Seyfried's portrayal of Holmes in the Hulu series The Dropout. I think Lawrence has caught on to what everyone else was already thinking. This story is played out. Freaking good for Jennifer Lawrence, too, because she's probably one of the few actresses who literally has the power to do that, basically saying, I'm not going to do better than that, so let's not even bother. Maybe she'll move on to a Tiger King movie instead. (laughs) (sighs) Let's hope not. Amazon is turning the adult animated film Sausage Party into a series. What? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, I look forward to many... Many humorous misunderstandings in homes around the world as children ask to see the cartoon with the talking food. Oh, no, 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 no. We saw that in the theater and mm-hmm. the last 20 minutes of that, I felt like <laughs> a guy in a trench coat at a specific <laughs> movie theater in San Francisco. Yep. And Skydance and Paramount TV are teaming up to do an Alex Cross series starring one of our favorites, Aldous Hodge, but it's going to stream on Amazon. I love that Hollywood has finally started listening after me screaming for 15 years, hire Aldous Hodge for everything. I think Paramount is still having trouble figuring out what they're supposed to be putting on their streaming service. And every time there's a new season of Yellowstone and it's on Peacock instead of Paramount Plus, someone at Paramount needs to get fired. At Disney Plus, it should come as no surprise to anyone that Paul Bettany will be returning to the Marvel Universe as the Vision in his own series for the streamer. 
It definitely has a stupid but predictable name in uh, <laughs> Vision Quest, not to be confused with the weird Matthew Modine movie from the 1980s. <laughs> but this basically means that WandaVision is getting not one but two sequels over the next two and a half years. And I am so excited about this. Speaking of which, Aubrey Plaza has joined another WandaVision spinoff, Agatha, Coven of Chaos. That's right. They've hired like four people to be part of the coven. We presume that Aubrey Plaza is the scariest one of them all, but we don't know that for sure. She might just be mean. However, I do think it's interesting that Disney's recent casting has shown that they're not afraid to pick somebody who has already played in a comic book story of some sort, as Plaza was in the super, super, super strange FX show Legion, which is technically... A Marvel story, but only in the most general sense. And so I'm very, very excited about this because it just seems like WandaVision is casting our favorites. As someone had said when WandaVision first premiered, imagine going back to 2008 and telling Paul Bettany what the end result of doing a couple lines of voiceover in the first Iron Man movie would lead to. Very, very true. I assume it led to a brand new house in Los Angeles and maybe lots lots and lots of money. Hope, Yeah, exactly. Yes. On Hulu, fan favorite Chloe Bennett is joining Ronnie Chang in Interior Chinatown about a background character trapped in a police procedural trying to find his way into the larger story. Sponsored by the Nielsen Acquired ratings each week. (laughs) Peacock is teaming up with Brian Fuller to bring us Crystal Lake, a prequel series to the Friday the 13th movies. They could have called it Thursday the 12th, but I guess they chose that. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Fuller's great. He's done some great projects. Pushing Daisies is one of my favorites, but I don't know, a series based on Friday the 13th isn't necessarily something that I'm in for. We'll see. Could be good, could be bad. The move from broadcast to streaming continues unabated as CBS is tossing the reality dating show The Real Love Boat over to Paramount+. Plus. It's a weird twist because usually they're moving their scripted dramas to streaming and backfilling it with reality programming. But I guess The Real Love Boat just wasn't getting the ratings they wanted. And CBS is still a broadcast powerhouse. And so they have the luxury of moving their low rated shows to streaming where they don't need to necessarily find a specific time slot. You could just watch it whenever and free that space up for something else. Finally. Premium cable channel Showtime has canceled City on a Hill, starring Kevin Bacon and the aforementioned Aldous Hodge, after three seasons. Are you even listening to me, Showtime? (laughs) Yeah, we saw this with HBO's little brother, Cinemax, when they started moving content to their streaming service. Suddenly, all original programming on Cinemax was either canceled or in one or two cases, the programming was moved to HBO or HBO Max. And uh, Showtime now is also starting to cut back on their original programming. We just talked about it a couple of weeks ago where The Man Who Fell to Earth has been canceled on Showtime as well. If it's not on Paramount+, Plus, Showtime barely registers at the studio these days at Paramount, and uh, they're not necessarily willing to spend the money on original programming there. I suppose one option would have been to move that show over to Paramount Plus, but they might have thought it was also, you know, after three seasons, too expensive to keep it running. 
Tim, I think it's time for what kept you busy this past week. Can we please let Raul talk about things that maybe made him happy? Because I'm genuinely worried about him. Yes, we will. Let's move on to that. I'll start. Obviously, I was busy at Disney World and did a lot of fun things, including riding the extremely awesome Guardians of the Galaxy roller coaster for the first time and Remy's Ratatouille Adventure for the first time. Loved them both. But also... As far as airplane book reading, I read The Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes, which is a really delightful book. I like her very much. I relate to her a great deal. It may not be everybody's thing, but if you like that sort of stuff, it's definitely worth a look. Shonda's writing books now? It's not new. It's been around for a little bit, but really a great one. Hmm. Um, I love that have, you tied those things together just because the reason why Shonda Rhimes isn't with Disney anymore is because some absolute moron executive at Disney hinted that she should pay for her own tickets to Disneyland when she asked for free ones, <laughs> when she was making them hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. That person should have just said yes. Yes. Yes, they should. Raul, how about you? Well, I gave into my uh, Roku's peer pressure and uh, watched Weird, the Al Yankovic story. <laughs> if you have a Roku, uh, I don't think you can miss the fact that this movie premiered on streaming this week. It's advertised everywhere on your Roku. It's on the screensaver. It's on the menu. It's in the ads. This Roku original movie has just come out and Roku may have had a bad quarter and they may be forecasting a bad quarter for the end of the year as well. But if this movie is any indication, I think they're probably underselling themselves. And I think a lot of people are going to be watching this movie. It is unusual to be watching anything on the Roku channel where there are constant ads. I think there was maybe eight or nine separate ad breaks. Fortunately, I don't think any of the ads were political ads, which I can't say the same for Hulu. Hulu has a lot of political ads and that's very unpleasant. This movie is uh, the absolutely, totally true, not at all made up biography of Weird Al Yankovic, the musician who takes popular songs and changes the lyrics and turns them into parody songs. It stars Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al and has an insane supporting cast and tons of cameos. It is is a comedy and yes it is a parody there is i believe not a single serious moment in this movie and i'd argue that most of the narrative is entirely fabricated and made up radcliffe is a delight as weird al he plays it straight throughout but of course the whole thing is played as a joke i am a fan of weird al yankovic i loved his movie uhf many many decades ago and this movie actually has some similar undertones as UHF, some of the visual gags, the uh, silliness, the uh, dumb humor. I really enjoyed watching this movie, and I think anyone who ends up watching this will enjoy it as well. Awesome. And Tim, how about you? So this week, I decided I didn't stare at my phone enough during the day. So I played a whole bunch of a game called Marvel Snap. It is a new card battler game featuring both well-known and extremely obscure, well, at least until Kevin Feige gets a hold of them, Marvel characters. Each turn, each player places a card or cards of various cost, power, and abilities into one of three locations. And each one is revealed at the end of the turn and any abilities the cards have trigger. The player who has the higher power at two of the three locations wins 
happens to match. The twist is the locations, named after various Marvel locations relevant to the movies and shows, each have their own abilities, some static, some activate upon reveal, uh, and each one is revealed one at a time. The left location on turn one, the middle on turn two, the right on turn three. Decks consist of 12 cards and games only last six turns, meaning game is super quick and at the most take five minutes a piece. So it's pretty fun. Um, besides that super fast gameplay, it hasn't become like a pay to win game yet as there's microtransactions, but mostly for cosmetic things such as specific arts of certain cards rather than the cards themselves. Like say the Spider-Verse version of Miles Morales' Spider-Man instead of the comic book version or something like that. You do collect more cards by leveling up the ones you do have, but it doesn't make them stronger in terms of stats. It just makes them look prettier and it gives them like a different border and color. Uh, and the cards you unlock are from a random pool, which is a criticism of the game currently is sometimes you just get wrecked by a card you don't have and have no idea how you're actually going to obtain it until you actually do. Thanks, Killmonger, for killing all my one-cost dudes on that one game. The game has a pretty decent pedigree as the lead designer of it was also the lead designer of Hearthstone, Blizzard's training card game. He left in 2018, and this is the result of the company he founded shortly thereafter. It recently came out of the closed beta, so that's why it seems like it's been everywhere, just out of nowhere all of a sudden. So it is new, shiny, and quick and kind of fun, actually, for now. So yeah, give Marvel Snap a try if you have a few minutes to kill. Thanks. I was actually looking forward to hearing you talk about that. And David. Yeah. So on the flight home, I started watching the peripheral, which is the Amazon series that has replaced Lord of the Rings on the Thursday night schedule. It comes on generally right after the uh, NFL game. They'll make it live at that point, although it's technically a Friday release. This is a William Gibson story that it sounds like Ready Player One, and yet Kim's watched the pilot and she will agree. It is nothing like Ready Player One, this actually is, without doing too many spoilers, a kind of time travel-based series. And I have to say that I was kind of in awe of the first two episodes. I, I mean, I'm not easily impressed, and yet I would be hard to criticize any element of either episode. There is some shocking stuff, some stuff that is uncomfortable to watch, but I, I totally get where they're going with all of it, and I'm excited to see more, and I was kind of laughing because I watched the pilot first, and then I asked Kim to watch it, and she made the same snap to judgment that I did on a specific character, and then when we both kind of watched like, oh, never mind, we got this very, very wrong, and that sort of creative storytelling, that's so welcome in Hollywood these days. So, uh, so far, the peripheral is, I'm describing it as Continuum meets The Expanse, which, if you know me, is pretty high price. Yeah, first episode was good, and I will probably be caught up by the next time that we talk again. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at StreamingIntoTheVoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us and giving us a review in your favorite podcast player. Be sure to watch for us again next week. <laughs>